So this morning, we are going to continue, and in fact, we are going to camp out in the center of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. I oriented you a moment ago to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6, and we are slap in the middle of Matthew's organization of some of Jesus' key teaching. As I said at the outset of this series, it's unlikely that Jesus gave all this teaching at the same place at the same time, but rather Matthew has packed this sermon, probably a group of teachings that Jesus gives on the mount to these disciples and another concentric circle of those that are kind of eavesdropping on the conversation. And herein he packs for us the central elements of what it means to be a kingdom citizen, to repent of our sins, to come under his rule and reign and submit our lives to following him. And this morning you will not be surprised to find that at the center of this sermon is instructions on prayer. In fact, it is the Lord's Prayer. Now, because this is a quite common passage for those who are both inside the church and outside the church, we've got to do a little bit of deconstruction before we rebuild this prayer. Before we consider what Jesus is doing in this passage, let me give you a couple of things that Jesus is not doing in this passage. The first thing Jesus is not doing in our prayer this morning is he is not giving his disciples something else to do. Much like the giving to the needy that we saw last week, this is, an, this is just what kingdom citizens do. This is the natural outworking of repentance and faith is that we would talk to the one who has saved us, that we would pray. Jesus is operating with an expectation that those who come under his rule and reign would pray, which may be enough of a sermon in and of itself, right? The assumption is that God's people pray. So we must ask the question, do we? Are we the kind of people that pray? As Christians, as those who have been saved by God's grace, it is fitting for us to want to talk to the one who has saved us. And quite frankly, this is true of most faiths. In fact, I would think all faiths. And it's true of many people who would claim no faith at all. It's fascinating, right? That in moments of suffering or pain, people clamor for something outside of what they can see to whom they can speak. I'm with an Uber driver in Chicago here recently, and he's describing his routine through the Uber traffic and how he pauses at strategic points. Uh, He was a Muslim, and now he pauses at strategic times, at the key times of prayer, and orchestrates his driving ritual so that he can pull over and join with the others at these strategic moments to pray. This is just what people do. Believers, Christians, Muslims, those of no faith at all. And God would say, that is, that is right, that is fitting, this is something we should do. Secondly, Jesus is not, this morning, giving us some complex formula for prayer. He's not dictating to us a certain prescriptive pattern that we should follow in amount of time. Rather, he's arguing that prayer should be from the heart, just like the things that he's packed for us in chapter 5. He's simplifying the notion of prayer. Consider the way this text starts in Matthew 6, verse 5. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, 
For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and in the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. When you pray, go into your room and you shut the door. Pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who is in secret will reward you. Verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they can be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. And then pray like this, and then we get this kind of set off Lord's Prayer for us. So notice that the running start to this passage is an encouragement. Don't be like one that goes on the street corner and draws attention to yourself, just like the needy from the previous text. He's saying that there's no need to try to get people to look at you. Check your motives in prayer. Now, on the surface, it would seem like his instructions here prohibit any kind of public prayer, like what I just did. I'm in trouble, right? I set up the sermon and broke Jesus' instructions. I'm not in secret. I'm not in my closet. But the scriptures and Jesus throughout encourage and practice public prayer. So what we know to be true is this is not a dictate for us. Every time you pray, go in secret into your closet. But rather, this is like what we saw last week. This is an encouragement for us to check our motives. Don't let our left hand know what our right hand is doing in our giving. Go in secret. That even when we pray publicly, we can do it with properly oriented motives. Privately. And he says, don't do it with uh, many words. Again, this is not a new law for us, as if long prayers are somehow violating this command. We have Jesus staying up all night and praying. We see his deep prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. We see John 17, this high priestly prayer that's recorded. So many words are not what's at issue, but rather it's the motive of those many words. It's incessant babbling that's getting you nowhere. This conjures to mind a story from the Old Testament. It's probably one of the funniest scenes in all of the Old Testament scriptures, the interaction with Elijah and the prophets of Baal. If you've been around the scriptures for any length of time, you probably remember this scene. They're kind of having a contest. Hudson and I went and saw the Black Panther last night, so I'm up on the challenges, right? So you can kind of picture the challenges that are going down between these two greats, Elijah and all these prophets, and they're begging their God to come through and light this sacrifice on fire. And the false prophets, this is recorded in 1 Kings 18, beginning in verse 26. They took a bull that was given to them, and they prepared it, and they called upon the name of Baal, the false god, from morning until noon, saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. I mean, that's a long prayer, from morning till noon, all right? But there was no voice, and no one answered. And so they limped around the altar that they had made, and at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, now this, I mean, this is the classic, like this is LeBron-like taunting, or whoever the classic NBA taunter is right now. This is, this is the best. Cry aloud, for he's a god. Either he's musing or he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and he must be awakened. And they cried aloud, and they cut themselves as it was their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of oblation. But there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. This is the type of incessant babbling that Jesus is pressing against. You don't have to do that. 
You don't have to be the kind that stands on the corner and conjures up all these words from morning till noon. You don't have to be like the Gentiles in this passage from Acts 19, verse 34. They recognized that he was a Jew. This is Paul. For about two hours, they all cried out with one voice. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. I mean, you can imagine, for two hours, just chanting that this guy is great, that he is God. And Jesus is saying, don't be like those Gentiles. This would certainly draw the ire of his Jewish hearers. Hey guys, when you're going out and you're just babbling like that and trying to get all that attention, you're just being like the Gentiles. And you guys make fun of them and think they're silly for all this incessant babbling, but you're doing the very same thing. You can be like Elijah. You can be a person of just simple prayer that trusts God. There's no need, you hear Jesus saying, for all this craziness. You don't have to do anything special to prove your worth or try to get God to pay attention. Because this is, God is predisposed to listen to his people when they call to him. This is the good news hovering behind our prayers. We don't have to do anything to prove it. We don't have to do anything to attract his attention. He's not asleep. He's not out relieving himself. He's predisposed to listen to his people. So we can just talk. And thirdly, Jesus is not giving them something merely to recite. It's fascinating. I can still remember playing high school football, and before we would go out and take the field uh, for Rock Hill Bearcats, uh, before we'd go out and take the field, all these smelly dudes would gather around each other and kneel and put our hands on each other's shoulders and recite the Lord's Prayer. It's just a fascinating experience, right? I mean, these guys are just cursing up a storm and talking about their weekend, and then we gather together and kind of do this little chant and then go out and bash each other's heads in on the football field, right? Now, that, there's nothing inherently wrong with reciting this prayer, particularly if you're learning to pray or perhaps reorienting yourself to prayer. But simple rote repetition doesn't seem to be what Jesus had in mind. Rather, he's giving us handrails to ascend the staircase of prayer. I think that's a helpful picture. He's giving us some handrails to bank on, to lean into, that help us carry the weight up the staircase of prayer. So what are those handrails like? Well, he tells us. Here's when you pray, pray like this. Beginning in verse 9. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This simple prayer that even as I was reading, you probably have some rhythm playing in your head of ways that you've heard that prayer recited over the years. Entire books have been written on this prayer There's no way that I'm going to plumb the depths of it in a single sermon. But I do want to give you this morning five things that I think Jesus is doing in this prayer, five handrails for us that help us ascend the staircase of prayer, five ways that he's framing our prayers and helping us understand what does Christian prayer look like. First, what kind of prayer is this? First thing I want you to notice is that it is a collective prayer. 
a collective prayer. Notice the way the prayer begins. Jesus says that we are to pray our Father. And then later in verse 11, interestingly, the prayer is give, not me, but rather give us our daily bread. Prayer, God's people, kingdom citizens, pray collectively. Sometimes these prayers are offered in unison with other people. This is why the the church matters, because we are able to collectively power pack our prayers when we come together, we pray together. For example, we might corporately, together on a Sunday morning, bow and pray for those who lost loved ones in the latest school shooting. And as the leader prays, perhaps me, you are listening to that prayer, but you're not passively listening to the prayer. You're actively listening. You might silently pray along with them as they pray, or you might quietly add to what they say with some thoughts of your own. might trigger something in your mind. Or you might simply get to the end of the prayer and end with an amen. Uh, let it be saying that you are in agreement with the prayers that are prayed and that we do that together. So let's actually do that together. Would you join me? Let's pray. Father, we bow this morning in in unity, saying you are our Father. And so we do ask that your grace would be present to those who are suffering under the latest tragedy in our country. We pray that you would give care to the families who have lost loved ones, who are grieving afresh this morning. We pray that your grace would be present to the churches and to the caregivers who are giving counsel to those who are grieving and burdened. We pray for your conviction on the shooter, that you might minister to him in a deep way. And we ask that you would use this tragedy to be a means of the building up of your church and seeing people come to faith in that community. We ask that your grace would be present there this morning as they gather, and we ask that in Christ's name. Amen. Now, in that prayer, you join with me in affirming to God this is what we are praying for. This reminds us that Jesus, throughout the scriptures, didn't call isolated individuals to follow him. He called groups of disciples. Now, I'll admit it, it's bad, judge me, all the dudes in the room are going to judge me. I really love The Greatest Showman. I'm not going to tell you how many times I've seen The Greatest Showman because you would, you would take my man card and mock me intensely. But if you think about the premise, if you've seen the movie, if you think about the premise behind the movie The Greatest Showman, you can boil it down to, to one central idea. This guy, P.T. Barnum, takes a ragtag group of individuals, makes them a family, and gives them a mission. There's the movie. He takes outcast, brings them together in a family, and gives them a mission. This is exactly what God's doing in his church. 
We don't like to think of ourselves as the bearded woman from the greatest showman. But spiritually, we're all ragtag outcasts that have no right to be a part of God's family. God grafts us into his family, and then he gives us a mission. This family on mission will not always pray collectively together, but we can still pray in unison. Even when we're scattered, we can pray together by knowing one another's needs, by partnering in missionary endeavors, and praying toward the same end. God's church prays collectively together. And so for you who may not have a church home, this may be your first morning, this is one of the reasons I would argue you need a family like this. You need a place where you're known, where people can pray with you and for you, and you can do more than simply pray for the needs that you feel. If not, your prayers are going to get really narrow and self-seeking. You need to be able to bow this morning and pray for believers in Turkey. You need to be able to bow this morning and pray for my friend that I had lunch with this week in India who is mapping out his next evangelistic endeavors by when the snakes move. I'm not making that up. He's like, Matt, we got to be really careful because we can't travel on this day or this day. We can't travel at this time of night because the snakes are moving and we got to kind of hide out. All right, see, if you're a narrow, you're not praying for snake movement, right? But if you're a part of God's missionary church, you are. These are concerns that God's people have around the world. So it orients us to something bigger. Secondly, this prayer is Godward. This prayer is Godward. It is oriented to God. Notice the second refrain here. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Again, we're thinking, what are the guardrails of our prayers? Before we get to God I need, God give me, God help me, We're affirming who God is and his nature and character. Now, I want you to notice the two things that are matched here. The first language we have is God as Father. This is the reason our prayers can be simple and direct. They're already built on a family relationship. I can talk to my dad in a way that I would not talk to your dad because he's my dad. We got some history together. We got a relationship, and so I can go to him and say, Dad, my truck is broken. I don't know how to fix it. Help me. I wouldn't ask your dad that. Well, I might ask your dad that if I was really desperate, but by and large, I'm not going to ask your dad that because I have the family relationship. I can talk to him as my father. The father knows the needs, and he loves them. In fact, this is what Jesus encourages us here. Your father already knows what you need before you ask him. Now notice, and this is critically important, and this is just a mystery. We just got to chalk this one up as a mystery. The Father knows what you need before you ask him, but you still ask him, okay? Knows what you need before you ask him, but you're still saying, God, give me this day my daily bread. God knows what you need and often gives you stuff without you asking him, but you still ask him, okay? So the Father knows our needs and loves us. And again, this morning, if you are here and you're not certain that God is your father, then ultimately you are missing the key ingredient, if we want to use that language, of prayer. Simply voicing words in the mist in your garage one day to some ill-defined deity, that's not prayer, friends. Prayer is offered through the person and work of Jesus Christ to God the Father. And so we pray to God as our Father. He's close. He's not distant. But he's also hallowed. It's an interesting word, right? 
separate, set apart, seen as great, revered. He's a great God. The language of Dr. Graham's passing this week conjures up this kind of image for some. I went to flip on a basketball game yesterday afternoon to veg out, and instead of my basketball game that I was going to watch was the Billy Graham motorcade, right? And the cameras are following this, of this towering figure in the Christian world and his passing. His name is special to many. It is prized. It is significant. And so all things stop and orient themselves to him. This is what we are to do when we call to mind God's name. His name is meant to bring to mind certain things. God's name is hallowed. So, friends, what is it that makes God's name hallowed to you today? What makes God's name great to you? What do you love about him? If not, if we don't begin our prayers this way, we're going to grow forgetful. That's why it's really helpful for us to repeat some same things as we pray. We thank God for sending Jesus. We thank God for forgiving our sins. We thank God for indwelling us with his spirit. We thank God for the gift of his church, because if not, we're going to forget these things. And it's important for our hearts to begin with Godward praise. Then thirdly, this prayer is missionary in orientation. Notice the next couplet here in the prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Hallowed is a statement about God, but it's also a request. God, your name is hallowed, let it be hallowed. God, your name is revered. There are people in Bangladesh this morning that have never heard your name. We pray that your name would be hallowed by them as your church goes and shares the gospel. He partners with this hallowed your name, this, this ask your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, or we might simplify it in our language. As things are in heaven, let them be on earth. Let it be on earth like it is in heaven. Well, how is it in heaven? At least two things. Every tribe, tongue, and nation are there. We know this in light of Revelation 7. Every people around the world, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation are going to be there. Not every one, but representatives of every tribe, tongue, and nation. So we would, if we're praying in light of this passage, we're going to pray for missionaries and for those on the front lines of getting the gospel to every tribe. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. That means there's got to be people from people that have never heard of you right now that would hear about you. And how does that happen? Well, Paul tells us in Romans 10, it happens when God's people are sent. So if we're using these handrails to ascend the staircase of prayer, we pray for our church's missionaries. We pray for our church's trips. Or if you're like, I don't know anyone, you've got the gift of Google at your disposal. Uh, I'll give you a tool this morning. The Joshua Project is a great place to go to see just updated stats of what God's doing around the world. This might be on the slide behind me. Uh, if not, this is the Joshua Project stats from this week. Currently in the world, there are 16,954 people groups. Of those 16,000 people groups, there are a few over 7,000 who are currently unreached with the gospel. 
So percentage-wise, that's 41% of the people groups around the world currently do not have access to knowledge of Jesus Christ and access to the disciple-making of a local church. So if we want to put that in numbers for us, a population of 7.48 billion currently on this earth, there are 3.14 billion people without access to the gospel message. What's something to pray for? That's a great place to begin. You don't have to know those people, but you can bow your knee in prayer. You can lead your family. You can cry out to God that he would raise up and send missionaries to see to it that people from those 3.14 billion people come to saving faith in Jesus. This is a prayer that God would come quickly through gathering his people. Then how else is it in heaven? There's wholeness. There's peace. There's shalom there. This is not a prayer, God, get me out of here. But it's a longing, like the prophets, that God's peace, his joy, would come here. So when we pray for pockets of brokenness in our day, we're praying in light of this passage. When we're praying for the challenges related to, say, sex slavery, or when we're praying for various ethnic minorities and political platforms and conclusions that are drawn around immigration reform. We're praying in light of this passage that, God, your brokenness would be mended in our place today. Praying for those on the front lines, and we're praying for pockets of brokenness. So, for example, this week, one of our missionary friends, Heather Tolbert in Spain, posted online that she's having an opportunity today to share the gospel with a non-believing friend that she's built a relationship with in hopes that that individual would come to saving faith in Jesus. Do you say, Matt, Spain? That's like the epicenter of the church. Well, unfortunately, it is now vastly post-Christian in its orientation. Very few evangelical believers in churches. So this morning, we can orient our prayers in a missionary posture as we partner with Heather collectively, God's work around the world. So let's do that. Join me as we pray. God, we don't want to be the kind of people who hear your word and don't do it. And so this morning, we ask in light of your redemptive mission around the world that you would draw this friend of Heather's to saving faith. We pray that you would encourage her, make her bold in the Spirit's power today. That she would share and not shy away from the hope of Jesus Christ. We recognize that the wind of your Spirit blows wherever it pleases. And so we ask this morning that it would blow into the life of this friend. And that you would bring Spirit-purchased change to this life, and we pray that it would start a movement, churches planted, disciples made throughout Spain, and we ask that in light of your missionary presence in this world, and for Christ's fame, that his name would be hallowed there. Amen. Fourthly, in light of this prayer, notice that the prayer is dependent. It is missionary and it is dependent. Probably the phrase that's most memorable to many of us is this, this 
Give us this day our daily bread. It's such a childlike request, isn't it? God, give us this day our daily, daily bread. This type of childlike orientation is exactly what Jesus is driving at for his people. Much like the manna that was given in Exodus 16 in the Old Testament, where you didn't store it up, didn't go out and get as much as you can, and you store it up for like a month, put it in a big vat, some, I don't know what you do with manna, vat, sounds good, uh, put it in something and store it up for a while, but rather each day you're getting up and you're hunting for manna, and each day God is providing for the needs of his people. There is a subtle or perhaps not so subtle temptation for those of us who are believers in America today, right? It is to believe that we are not dependent anymore on the grace of God and the provision of God to give us our daily bread. There's the temptation to believe that my work and my effort earned me this Five Guys cheeseburger, and therefore I will enjoy the fruit of my labor. Rather, every good gift comes from the Father, and as soon as he has given us a culture where we have these things at our disposal and feel no sense of dependence often, he can take those things away. We live in a day with perhaps greater risk to shirk the responsibility of this prayer because we do have so much at our disposal. Yes, the Father knows our needs before we ask. Yes, he often provides apart from our asking. But Jesus is pressing us to posture our heart to one of dependence, to recognize that all good things come from him. And what does this kind of prayer do? It keeps our hearts tethered to him. It keeps them dependent on him throughout the day. It reminds us that everything that I have is a good gift from a good God. And lastly, this prayer is active. Notice in verse 12, he says, Forgive us our debts as we've forgiven our debtors. Lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if we forgive others their trespasses, uh, I'm sorry, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is perhaps not the end that you have on the Lord's Prayer playing in your mind. Later, scribal editors perhaps have added something to kind of tidy up what feels like a little bit of a loose, bumpy end to the prayer. But yet we see what Jesus is ending with here is some, some action on the part of his people. Two specific actions, forgiveness, that bookends this, forgiving our debts, and then verse 14, forgiveness. And then this idea of leading us not into temptation. The language here presents a bit of a stumbling block. Would God the Father actually lead us into temptation? Rather, perhaps better, keep us from temptation, protect us from falling away, guard and secure our faith, keep us from stumbling. This is what we're asking the Father. And this action is a close tie with forgiveness in verse 12 and verse 14. Here, God the Father, Jesus links the forgiveness that we have received with the forgiveness that we would then give, saying that those whom the Father has forgiven will demonstrate that kind of forgiveness in their responsiveness to one another. Now, it's clear these high-water actions, temptation and forgiveness, 
are those that we'll return to time and time again. But no, there's no reason to see them as the only ones that Jesus is pressing here. Rather, he's suggesting that the way our prayers end is with some confession and compulsion to action. Putting feet to our faith. That we would be the kind of people that do what kingdom citizens do. So it would be appropriate this morning that as we are being exhorted and growing in our prayer lives, that we would do that very thing and ask God to make us people of prayer. So let's practice this morning. Would you join me as we pray? Our God, we ask this morning that you would make our prayer life an appropriate reflection of the work that you have done in our hearts. We admit how prone we are to self-reliance and sinful apathy when it comes to prayer. We could dole out the excuses and reasons, yet at the end of the day, we need to confess that prayerlessness is sin and we need to repent of it. We need to ask that by your Spirit's power you would tether us to you in deep dependence and that you would propel feet to our faith in active, intentional prayers for your name to be hallowed, your kingdom to expand, sinners to come to saving faith. We want to be people of prayer. And we ask this morning that you would protect us from shame, guilt, or condemnation, but lead us to be the kind of people that do the next right thing we've rallied the troops and attempted to muster the energy to pray and fail time and time again in the past, would this morning, would your spirit reawaken and re-encourage, reinvigorate the fires of our prayers that have perhaps dwindled? Would you make us deeply dependent people who trust in you and model that with humble and active prayers, we ask for Christ's sake. Amen. Lastly, I want to encourage you this morning to not worry if the handrails feel a bit rickety. To not feel like what you've heard this morning is a prescriptive five steps to better prayer. And if you somehow miss one, you've squandered the Spirit's power through your prayer life. Rather, would you hear these words from the Apostle Paul in Romans 8? Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Isn't that good news for poor prayers like you and I? For we don't know what to pray for as we ought. You ever been there? I know I need to pray, but I just don't know. My words feel so flat, I can't really muster up the energy. Good news, friends. You have a spirit who goes in you and with you. And that spirit, Paul says, 
intercedes with groanings that are too deep for words. Here's the good news. Our prayer lives are ultimately, like all of our lives, God-dependent. As we bow our knee in prayer this morning, hovering over and under and behind and in our prayers, those who are in Christ, is a spirit, the Holy Spirit, who is at work packing power into our feeble request and bringing them before the Father. You never pray alone. God's Spirit is at work. So let's, let's do that. Let's end this morning with a Spirit-powered prayer. And then let's stand and sing some Spirit-powered songs. Would you join me as we close? Our Father, it is absolutely stunning to think that this morning the collective choir of our prayers is being powered by your Spirit. The same Spirit that was hovering over the vast expanse of the deep way before our lives even began. Back in Genesis 1, this Spirit that enlivened all of creation is now enlivening our prayers, bringing them before the Father, packing my frail words with intentionality, with punch, bringing them before a Father that knows what I need, is predisposed to care for his people, for his church, is leaning into our prayers right now, just waiting to act. God, what a beautiful picture to be reminded of what's going on in this moment right now. We thank you that we never pray alone. We thank you that you meet us in a lazy boy on Monday morning. You meet us over lunch with fussy kids when we're trying to pack in a few minutes of prayer. You meet us in frail times at night when we kneel beside a bed with a little kid or when we hold the hand of a spouse. You're there. And you're taking our words and you're doing something with them that is instrumental in your mission in the world to save sinners and fix the world. We get a part in that. Father, we can merely say thanks. And we ask that our thankfulness would overflow in active lives of obedience, that we would be people of prayer. We ask that we would do that even as we sing, as we reflect on your goodness to close our service this morning. Would you be honored for Christ's sake? Amen.